Hello, everyone. This is episode 17 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C., and with me today is Nathan Fox in San Francisco. Um, Nathan, I do want to hear how you're doing, but I should say before that uh, you've been quite a workhorse. Um, I've been listening to the episodes you've done with Ebony, and they've got a lot of good tips in them. Yeah, thanks. I mean, Ebony's a really great guest and she's been doing really well. So we've missed having you. It's really just been a scheduling thing. But uh, yeah, uh, thanks. I'm, I'm glad you uh, got a chance to listen to those. Yeah, and it sounds like she's she's doing pretty well and took to heart your advice to slow down, which, you know, is tough for a lot of people. Yeah, she's doing amazingly well so far. I can't wait to talk to her again and, and uh, check in and see how she's doing. Yeah. So um, you're doing good, I guess. Oh, yeah. Everything's great. It's nice to talk to you again. I'm looking forward to today's show. We have a lot of uh, cool stuff on the agenda, I think. Yeah. So let's see here. I'll just go through that really quickly. We want to talk about how to approach matching questions, which are the parallel reasoning questions or parallel flaw questions, I think sometimes people call them. And then talk about creating different worlds in the games, right? Uh, I think people will call that different scenarios or different options, how to split, a, I, I guess, your main diagram into multiple options and whether you should or shouldn't do that uh, before you start going into the questions. Yep. Um, whether to stay on course for the September LSAT, which is just two weeks from now. So Two weeks from tomorrow, right? Yeah, two weeks from tomorrow. Or, or go ahead and jump ship and, and aim for the December LSAT. Uh, we also want to talk about what to do during these last two weeks. And I guess the last thing would be whether you should jump into your personal statement and other application-related things or just wait until after the LSAT. So a lot of things to cover. Let's uh, Let's go back to the first one, how to approach the matching questions or parallel reasoning questions. Um, do you have anything you want to start us off with here? Um, I guess, ju- you know, the, the first kind of basic thing is that these matching pattern questions do tend to be, for a lot of people, a little bit tougher. So if you're struggling with the matching pattern questions or the matching flaw questions, um, you know, don't panic. I, I think everybody struggles with them a little bit. Um, do you, Ben, ever advise people to skip a matching pattern question here and there? Yes, and e- even more so since uh, starting the podcast, I know that you suggest that, I think, frequently, right? Unless, of course, it would be like an earlier parallel reasoning question, which is actually probably going to be easy, even if it looks long. Yeah, I pretty much never recommend that anybody skip any questions in the first 10. I think people get themselves into a lot of trouble by skipping questions in the first 10 in each section. I mean, those are the easy ones. And if you skip those questions in the first 10, no matter how long they are, all you're doing is really just like ensuring that you're going to have plenty of time to spend on the really hard ones that are later in the section. And for Mm -hmm. most people, I think that's an inefficient use of time. But um, so, you know, if there was a long parallel reasoning question, that was question number seven, I would always tell every student that they need to do it. But if that same long parallel reasoning question was question number 17, and if you were the kind of student who was maybe not going to finish the sections, or like if you are very close to finishing the sections, 
Um, that long parallel reasoning question, if it's number 17, it's probably fairly tough and it's twice as long as the typical question, but it's only worth one point, not two. So that can be a pretty good candidate for skipping. Yeah. You want, you're on the same page with that? Definitely. Especially if you decide to skip it right away. So you're not spending time trying to get into it and then jumping ship you know, a little ways into it. Now you've wasted time thinking about it. If it's a clean jump, then you get all the benefits of skipping without much of the downside. Yeah, that's a really important point there. I think that applies to the entire test. Um, students do like a halfway skipping sometimes, which I think is is really kind of unfortunate, where they'll they'll start reading the argument and they'll invest 30 seconds in it and then decide to skip it. And that's just that's just sad because now you've really burned that 30 seconds. You're not going to get back by skipping the question. So I think what you're saying, Ben, is if you can glance at question number 17 and you see that it takes up a whole column on the page and it's going to be one of these really long uh, matching pattern questions, if you can skip it in five seconds, that's great. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Don't, don't burn 30 seconds and then decide to skip it. Yeah. I agree. Same, same so, thing. So I was going to say, you know, same thing for the rest of the test. Like, don't start reading a reading comprehension passage. Get halfway through it and then decide to skip the passage. Mm-hmm. If you're going to skip a reading comprehension passage, if you read the first sentence and you decide you hate the topic and you want to skip it, that's fine. But don't don't half halfway skip it. Same for the logic games, right? Don't don't invest a bunch of time in a game and then decide to skip it. Mm-hmm. Basically, on the games, it's like you need to do it. Um, don't, don't, don't halfway do that. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, so when it comes to a situation where we're now trying to answer these questions and get through them, what, what's some of the advice that you typically give your students? Um, it's changed a little bit over the years. I, um, one thing that I've always said to students is that on these matching pattern questions, I feel like you really need to trust your gut or trust your ear. So I'm, I'm going for like a feeling a lot of the time when I'm answering these matching pattern questions. Um, I don't tend to answer them super technically. I will, if I have to, if I'm forced to, I'll like bust out a diagram and I'll, I'll, I'll I will solve it technically. I certainly have that in my bag of tools, but it's not the first tool that I would use. The first tool that I would use is that I want to read the argument. And then what I've been saying lately to my students is that I want you to react to the given argument. And then I want you to find an answer choice that causes you to have that exact same reaction. Okay. Mm-hmm. Does that, that does that sense. make sense? You that, that that does make sense to you, Ben? Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. it does. Okay, so like, let me just look at a sample question here, and then maybe the listeners can get a little more sense of what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, so I have in front of me the June 2007 LSAT. I've been using this same test um, with Ebony. If uh, listeners, if you just Google June 2007 LSAT, you will find it. It's free. It's the one. LSAT practice test that's out there that's free and um, because it's not uh, because the LSAC doesn't charge for it we can actually talk about these questions on the podcast um, so I'm looking at section one 
of the June 2000, sorry, section two of the June 2007 LSAT, and I'm looking at question number two, which is a matching flaw question. And I haven't looked at this question in quite a while. I just know that this is a matching flaw question, and I'm going to try to talk through it and sort of demonstrate this idea of having a matching feeling. So here, let's see if let's see if it works. Uh, the argument says all Labrador retrievers bark a great deal. All St. Bernard's bark infrequently. Each of Rosa's dogs is a cross between a Labrador retriever and a St. Bernard. Therefore, Rosa's dogs are moderate barkers. And I hear, you know, what most students would do is they would like go straight into the answer choices and they would start trying to find the answer. And instead, I want to sit with this argument for just a few seconds and have a reaction to it. Because if I have a reaction to this argument, then I should be able to find an answer choice that I have the same, where I have the exact same reaction or the exact same, in this case, the exact same objection. So mm -hmm. my, my objection here is, this is a bit like saying, um, you know, if we mix white paint and black paint, we're going to have halfway, exactly halfway in between white paint and black paint when we're done. Or if a very tall person and a very short person have a baby, then we're guaranteed going to have a middle height person. Um, yeah, I like, I like your second example. Um, I, I'm a little more almost, because I feel like your first one was somewhat maybe somewhat valid right? well, it's, I mean, it's, I guess... it's possible sure it, it is possible that if you mix black paint and white paint you do end up with exactly gray <laughs> but i wouldn't yeah. be surprised either if i mixed black paint and white paint and ended up with black paint i mean that that, yeah. that wouldn't surprise yeah, me so. Yeah. so i don't know the point is we don't know right we just we just don't know um mm -hmm. okay so here's i think what is going on here in this argument is that you're just assuming that if we mix two things we're going to have the result is going to be exactly the middle of those two things mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how about this you know if we mix something delicious to eat and something gross to eat if we mix <laughs> those two together then we're going to have something that's okay to eat yeah moderately moderately, moderately okay to eat it's like no it's probably going to be even grosser than the gross thing that you started with yeah okay all right so now i think we've got it and then to read the answer choices now, and I don't think I'm going to actually go through all these answer choices. Well, should I? I'll see if I can um, do it quick. Sure, yeah. A says, all students who study diligently make good grades, but some students who do not study diligently also make good grades. And students are surprised, but I'm done reading A. At that point, I'm done. Mm -hmm. Because it's just not the same thing. I know exactly what I'm looking for. I'm looking for mixing two things and expecting to have an average of those two things. A is not going in that direction. So I don't have to even read all of A in order to dismiss it. So what about A? What words in A made you think, mm, I'm done? Um, that's Thank you. Yeah, this some students, mm -hmm. where did yep. that, there was no some the evidence that we were given about the labs and the St. Bernard's was solely just all, you know, all Bernard, mm -hmm. St. Bernard's bark infrequently, all labs bark a great deal. The mm -hmm. idea that A has some in it is that's that makes it wrong. Also, when it says the first sentence is students who study diligently do make good grades. And then it says some students who do not study diligently also make good grades. Well, that's not mixing two different things anymore. Mm -hmm. 
That's and, right. Anyway, I don't need to read the rest of it. That's definitely out. So uh, if we, if you don't mind pausing for a, a second here, um, when, when I'm explaining parallel reasoning questions to my class, I'll often talk about how uh, three different ways of, of approaching them. And the first approach I suggest, I, I call it the intuitive approach, which I think is very similar or the same thing as what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. You, you try to get a feel for the argument. And that's the one I recommend first, because if you can understand it intuitively and get a grasp of it, it's just going to go a lot faster through the answers. But then the second thing, I, the second approach I point out to them, which is different than diagramming, and I call it, for a lack of a better term, cherry picking. And it's where I am cherry picking what I consider logically significant terms. And in this argument, you know, they say all Labradors and they say all St. Bernards. And so I'm going to be very skeptical of any argument that doesn't talk about all of both of these groups. And exactly like what you're saying, it talks about two different groups and it talks about how each of these groups has something that's different about them. One barks a great deal and the other barks infrequently that are sort of, you know, opposites of each other. And in this case, they do talk about two different groups because they talk about all students who study diligently and then they talk about students who do not study diligently. So those are two different groups, but they end up doing the same thing, which is making good grades, whereas we would expect them to both be different you know, on a different end of the spectrum. And then you add into that fact that, like you said, it says some students. So I, I, it's almost like we're kind of drawing from this cherry picking technique to help us intuitively, you know, move forward. So I guess, um, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm kind of meandering here, but the idea is that noticing those logically significant terms like all and some, although they can't necessarily rule out an answer choice definitively every time, it's definitely something to be very skeptical of whenever they're different. Yeah, I mean, the people who are really good at this have multiple different ways to get there, right? You mm -hmm. can answer the question by positively identifying the correct answer. You can also answer the question by eliminating four answers that can't be the correct answer. And sometimes you do a little bit of both, like you eliminate a few and narrow it down and then pick the right answer. So I, I do like what you're saying there, I, I think you're right that, yeah, you can use that kind of I, cherry picking is a good name for it, but we're, it's kind of like reverse cherry picking here, right? We're, we're saying, well, this does not have the same characteristics that we needed to be looking for. So, uh, so that puts a out. Yes. So, uh, whether, yeah, I guess what I was thinking is I'm cherry picking certain ideas out of the passage and I'm saying, Oh, this has got to have these. And if it doesn't, I'm going to get most likely get rid of it. There are occasions when they don't match up perfectly, but that's the nature of most parallel, not necessarily yep. parallel. Okay, let me read B. All type A chemicals are extremely toxic to human beings. All type B chemicals are non-toxic to human beings. At this point, I'm feeling I'm feeling very happy about B. Mm -hmm. And I, I haven't read the rest of B. But one technique that I that I sometimes think about here is if I can tell them what the rest of answer B should say in order to make it the correct answer, and then if B actually does say that, then I'm going to be really confident that B is the correct answer. Mm -hmm. So without looking, I'm covering it up now, but it said all type A chemicals are extremely toxic, all type B chemicals are non-toxic. 
I want them to say, so if we just mix 50-50 chemical A and chemical B, then we're going to get something that is semi-toxic. Let's see what it says. This household cleaner is a mixture of type A and type B. Therefore, this household cleaner is moderately toxic. And that has to be the correct answer. Yeah. What do you think about that? I agree. I agree. I, I guess um, a lot of times I'll pick an answer in the same way. And it's interesting you talk about the predicting. I, I hadn't realized that I did that, but I do ask students in class a lot of times. I'll say, oh, so what, what should happen next? And I guess that's what I was doing. So that's, that's, that's interesting. But um, in any case, I, do you ever stop? and not look at the rest because i would still i guess scan the rest just to make sure that the others were all off and probably not read them all the way because we could stop reading them after the first or second sentence kind of like what you did with a yeah i i would read all five answer choices i mean if you've done enough lsat practice you've definitely gotten burned at least once or twice where you have chosen an answer and then realized that the correct answer is actually some later answer choice that you did not read Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't take too many of those errors to just learn that, you know, you really do need to look at all five on the logical reasoning. So I, I would, but I start off with very little respect for each of the answer choices. And now that I've found an answer that I really like, I'm probably going to have even less respect for C, D, and E. I would very quickly skim them just looking for a reason to eliminate them and um, basically, they would have to prove it to me at this point that they are worthy of consideration. You know, I'd start reading C, D, and E, but unless they just jump off the page at me as like, yep, this is exactly the same thing, um, then I'm just going to quickly eliminate C, D, and E and pretty confidently choose B and move on. Yeah. I, I exactly. do want to point out, you know, the, the one bigger bigger concept it applies not just to the matching pattern questions. That thing I just did where I was predicting what I wanted the rest of the answer to say, um, more and more I'm realizing how important it is that you tell the test what you want the right answer to be, not you read the five answer choices and then let the test tell you what the right answer is. Um, for example, I was talking to a student, a tutoring student yesterday about the reading comprehension. And she was like, I, I was looking at her, like her method for the reading comprehension. And she was doing a must be true or a, a main point question, a main conclusion question. And she was diving right into the answer choices on the main conclusion question without first making a prediction of what she thought the main conclusion of the passage was. And that is just a disastrous strategy because if you go in without a prediction, then you end up giving way too much respect to the answer choices. And then you start like actually working on behalf of the answer choices, like trying to make an answer choice work for you. And I found her being like, well, B, B seems, you know, B seems like that could be it. And, and it was like not anywhere close to what the main conclusion of the passage really was. And mm -hmm. if I if I got her to back up and then just say, okay, well, now hold on. You read the passage. Now you just tell me in your own words what the main point is. And she was able to tell me. And then I said, well, 
is that at all like what B, that answer choice that you were about to pick? And she was just really getting confused by the answer choices because she wasn't making strong enough predictions. So mm-hmm. really from front to back on the test, like you, you got to be trying to predict what you want the answers to say. I completely agree with that. I, um, I feel like what the prediction does as well is force you to understand what was actually said, because as you try to make that prediction, you're forced to think, oh, wait, did the premise actually say some or most or whatever? And that review just makes you all the more familiar with what was being said. Um, I would add, though, too, that there are some question types where I'm more inclined to uh, give up on making a prediction and others where I'm, if I can't make a prediction, I'm not going to give up until I really do because I know that I can. So, for example, sufficient assumption questions, I feel like, can always be predicted. I agree. And so if I'm having trouble making a prediction, I'm just going to stick with it until I can make that prediction. Yeah. Whereas with necessary assumption questions, I, I, exactly what, like what you're saying, I do try to make that prediction up front. But if I run into trouble, I'm more inclined to see myself just say, okay, there's a whole host of things that could be necessary for this argument to work. So let me start going through and just asking myself, does this necessarily have to be true? And so on. I totally agree. Yeah, some questions more than others. Certainly main conclusion questions, you have to make a prediction. Sufficient assumption questions, you have to make a prediction. Um, but yeah, necessary assumption, eh, maybe not so much. Even some must-be-true questions, maybe not quite so much. Um, on these matching pattern questions, I do find myself making a pretty strong prediction um, before I dive into the answer choices. I mean, I actually, with this one, I did it immediately, right? I, I gave actually like three different examples of like, well, here's what I think a right answer would be. I had mm-hmm. my paint example, I had my tall and short people example, I had my food example, and none of those are going to turn out to be the answer. The point on this type of a question is not to predict the exact answer, but it's to predict the correct type of answer so that you can then more efficiently sort through the answer choices. Yes, that makes sense. Cool, well, that's a lot. What, what else do we have to say about uh, this type of question? So I guess I would. I, um, one thing I like about cherry picking, which again is not my default approach. It's more, I guess, some concrete things to sort of tap into when I'm debating two answer choices or whatnot. And some some of these parallel reasoning questions, they can be very formulaic and the argument may be hard to understand. So for example, I'm thinking of, uh, it's in test 61, which I can't remember which else that that is, but there's a question that has to do with some brick houses and it's it's a flawed argument and it's pretty hard to understand and to be honest i've actually never taken the time to totally understand the flaw so i the first time i attempted the question i think i did because i was trying to do what we're trying to do here and that is get my mind wrapped around what the actual argument structure is and what's wrong with it because the the correct answer is going to do the same thing but it was kind of tough and formulaic to figure out what the flaw was even saying because the argument itself was was very uh, confusing. And so then I resorted to cherry picking, which you have to be careful with. But in that particular argument, it had 
a one, it had an every, and then it had two mosts. And so what I did is I scanned down the answer choices and I said, okay, I've just, let me look through these answer choices and see which ones have an every or a word that means every, and then two words that mean most, which may be majority or whatever. And there were only two answer choices that did that. A lot of, there was an answer choice that has most, 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 no every or no all. And then there's an answer choice that had some in it. And so since they're, I mean, again, definitively, it's hard to say this is definitely wrong, but it's like, well, at least for a start, let me narrow it down to these two. And then what I did for the, the between the last two, I noticed that the most was in the conclusion and, and the every and the other most were in the two premises. So then I looked through those answer choices and I noticed, unfortunately, that both answer choices used most in the conclusion. So I couldn't eliminate either one on that basis. But then I looked to the word every because the word every in the original argument, um, it, you know, it's, there's only one every. There's only one word that means all in that argument. And it came right before the concept. I think it was brick houses. And so then I looked where that concept appeared again, and it appeared again in the conclusion. So this concept doesn't appear anywhere else except right after the word every, and then again in the conclusion right after the word most. So that I knew I knew that in the an- correct answer, it was almost certain that whatever concept came after the word every or all, whether it was cars or monkeys or whatever, that concept would not appear anytime again in the argument except in the conclusion right after the word most or whatever word meant most or whatever word they were using uh, to mean most. And that was able, you know, between the two answer choices that left were left, I was able to narrow it down and get rid of the other one because it didn't do that. In other words, it didn't match that, you know, it didn't use the, the logically significant terms and the concepts in the same way. So that's great. I mean, you, you have a lot of different ways to get there, right? You have, you have, multiple different paths to get yourself to the correct answer. Um, here's one more just uh, kind of really concrete little strategy. If you're not sure um, at all what to do on the, a matching pattern question, one thing that you can do is just look at the conclusion. Have you heard this before, Ben? Mm-hmm. Yes. Just just look at the conclusion of the argument. So um, for the listeners, again, I'm looking at the June 2007 LSAT. Uh, section two, question two, and the given argument, uh, the conclusion was, therefore, Rose's dogs are moderate. In other words, the conclusion was uh, the mix is going to have uh, the, the the moderate, the middle ground, the, the half and half um, characteristics. So this dog is going to be a moderate barker was the conclusion. So then if you just scan A, B, C, D, E here, I think A, the conclusion Jane makes somewhat good grades, that seems to match. B, the household cleaner is moderately toxic, that seems to match. C, therefore some members of the Perry family live in Greene County and some live in Wynn County, that to me, I don't see that as a match. If it said, therefore the family lives halfway in between Greene County and Wynn County, that would be okay. But mm-hmm. half of them having one characteristic and half of them having the other characteristic, that seems wrong to me. I think you could eliminate C just based on, on that ground. Excellent. Would, would you call that cherry picking as well? I think it may yes. fall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So okay. we're looking for logically significant things. And you have to make sure they're in the right place, exactly like what you're doing, right? You're saying let's focus just on the conclusion, the conclusion so we yeah. can compare apples to apples as opposed to 
the conclusion in the original to accidentally the premise in one of the answer choices. So con uh, continuing on, D says, therefore Bob knows both shorthand and calculus? That doesn't seem right. I wanted him to know halfway between shorthand and calculus or something like that. That doesn't seem right to me. I think D would be eliminated on that ground. E says, therefore half the dresses in this closet are Kanisha's and half of them are Connie's. Again, that doesn't seem to be blending um, characteristics. So I, I think probably E wouldn't be the answer as well, just based on that one technique. So there, just looking at the conclusions might have narrowed you down to A and B. Yeah. And I guess I would add to that, um, when you're looking at the conclusion, or really any other part of the argument, because you can, you can extend that to other parts as well, but it, it's convenient to focus in on the conclusion because it's, like you're saying, it's just like one part and you can narrow in on that. The types of things I'm looking for are not just, like here you looked at moderate, which is excellent. I would also look to things like some, most, and all, which is what we were just talking about before, but also... Um, relative versus absolute terms yeah. not so much when it's absolute but when it's relative when the conclusion makes a comparison like johnny is more successful than phil uh right away i'm thinking okay so the correct answer has to have a conclusion that makes a comparison um however it does that but a lot of answers won't yeah, no, you're right. Um, if it was Johnny has some of more some more characteristic than Phil, then you would need the correct answer to be something like San Francisco is more temperate than DC, or DC is more volatile weather than San Francisco, something like that, right, to match it. Yeah. So the the the, the six things I'm actually thinking about are word strength, relative versus absolute terms, so a comparison. Um, if-then statements versus just a regular statement that's not an if-then statement. Um, beliefs versus facts. So sometimes conclusions will talk about what someone thinks or claims or argues or not even the conclusion, but somewhere in the, the argument it will say that. And that distinction between saying what they think or they believe versus just saying it outright is, is going to most likely be repeated in the correct answer. Um, causal statements versus just a regular statement. So anything that sort of creates a causation, yeah. I would look at. And then the last thing is verb choice. So the, the difference between a sentence that says something like will versus can versus should. Mm. So just because someone should do something doesn't mean that they will do it or that they can do it um, and, and vice versa. So those, especially when I see can or should, uh, creating an obligation versus or creating an ability, those sort of that sort of language is almost certainly going to be repeated uh, in the correct answer. Okay, so I guess just to kind of wrap it up, then on the matching uh, matching pattern questions, the one thing that I really want to emphasize the most is that all of these technical approaches, they are you, you really should be employing these technical approaches after you attempt to do more of an intuitive kind of an approach. Because most people, I think, if they really just do it intuitively, if they just, I mean, you've been matching since Sesame Street, right? Everybody, matching is like a very human, very natural thing that we do is, is recognize common patterns. So <clears throat> if you just do the intuitive approach of which one feels like it's mostly, which one feels the same, 
then I think you actually are going to be rolling in a lot of those technical things without even thinking about it. Because if the conclusion of one of the arguments says, therefore, John should do X, Y, Z, and if the mm -hmm. conclusion of another argument says, therefore, Bill will do X, Y, Z, I think it is very likely that intuitively you're going to recognize that those are not the same things. When you don't have success with the intuitive approach, then that's when I would recommend doing more of a technical kind of an approach. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I mean, I think you should start with the intuitive approach to avoid, um, you know, too narrowly focusing in on something and then kind of missing the bigger picture. Yeah. Um, but I do also think it's helpful to kind of run through those different logical, logically significant terms just because once you start thinking about them, like the difference between will or can or should and stuff like that, I think you can become consciously aware of them, whereas before you might have just, you know, glossed over them. And so then you can start incorporating them, like you're saying, incorporating them into the, the intuitive approach. Cool. Uh, makes sense. What's, what's next on the agenda? So um, when to create two or more worlds in the games. Okay. This so, is something I do a lot. And um, I'm, I'm not sure, do you do it? I have a feeling that I might spend more time on my initial setups than you tend to spend on your initial setups. You can obviously correct me if I'm wrong on that. But Oh, really? Um, what, what makes you think of that? Well, when you say that you do the if questions first, that made me think that maybe your technique was let's do the if questions first and that might like build us enough samples that we don't really need to do a whole grand solution at the start of the game. Am I wrong about that? Um, well, I do like to go as far as I can with my initial setup. Um, I do tend to like worlds. I don't know, you know, maybe I don't do it as frequently as you do, but I still feel like even if I do worlds, even if um, I've created the whole grand setup, I still just I figure there's a benefit in creating those scenarios since I might end up using them to answer those other questions. I mean, if, okay. if I create worlds and those worlds are pretty complete and definitive and they seem to cover everything, then maybe doing the if questions first is only marginally benef beneficial, if at all. But since it's just the default habit anyways, um, I'm just doing them first. In those circumstances, anyways. Okay, well, so then I'm I'm definitely wrong about that. Um, I'm sure you get students asking you all the time, uh, when when Ben, when do I know? When do I make those worlds? Yeah. So my at least the two the two rules that I think of at least in my head, and I'd be curious to see what you have to to add to this. But I I say to them, if you see in your in your so you, you write out the rules and try to try to put together the rules as you go along as much as you can you get done writing all the rules if you see an either an ex, an explicit or implicit or statement and what i mean by that is sometimes you have explicit or statements where they literally say t has to be second or fifth but then sometimes you have implicit or statements in other words they don't actually say T has to be second or fifth, but when you look at the rules, you kind of realize, look, there's only really two slots 
for this particular variable or this set of variables or whatnot. And so if you have a situation where you have an or statement um, where a variable can only go in two places or maybe three places, I mean, maybe even four, but usually two or three, then I would ask myself, would knowing that that variable goes in either slot two or slot five immediately lead to some sort of inference? For example, if I knew that T were in slot two, if knowing that could help me decide right away that M has to be in slot one, then I would seriously consider creating two worlds, one in which T is in two and the other which in which T is in five. Um, there are a lot of or statements in the games that whether T is in two or T is in five doesn't lead to anything or doesn't seem to lead to anything right away. And in those cases, I would probably move on and not create worlds. But if it seems like I have two options or three options, and it seems likely that knowing what happens would lead to something else, then I'll start trying to create worlds. So I think you do it exactly the way I do it. Um, I've boiled it down to two bullet points or two things that I'm looking for. I tell my students that it's a balancing test. What I want is, first, I want a dividing line. And then the second thing is, I want shit to happen in one or both or three or four of the worlds that I create. So <laughs> what by, by dividing line, I mean what you're talking about with the or statement. Mm-hmm. If I see a way to make a split, and your example was if somebody has to go second or fifth, then that gives me two templates. There's just the world where somebody goes second, and then there's the world where somebody goes fifth. And that that causes me to suspect that that might be a good place to make two worlds. But then I need the next thing, which is, I say, I need shit to happen in one or both of those worlds. So, and the way you put it was, I need it to immediately trigger something else to happen. And I think yes. that's, that's exactly right. Um, a lot of times it's not a good idea to make worlds. You know the rule that says L has to go first or L has to go seventh? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. frequently, in from what I've seen, that frequently doesn't make a lot else happen in the game. No. Um, what would make a lot happen is, especially like a big block of variables. Like let's say you've combined a couple rules together, and now you have a big chunk of variables. That a lot of times is a fruitful ground for making multiple worlds because if this big chunk can only go in two places then that big chunk by itself has already made a lot of shit happen because you know where three variables go, let's say, in one of the worlds, and you know exactly where three variables go in another one of the worlds. And then those three variables being placed are very likely to cause other stuff to happen. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. I mean, whenever you have blocks like that, it's definitely something to just right away look for like you said, the dividing line. And I, I wanted to add, too, because right now we've been talking about the variables, but when it comes to, um, I guess, the slots themselves, if there's, in a grouping game, for example, if they tell they don't tell you how many people go in each group, but they tell you that group two has more people yep. than group three, yep. right away, you... I'll just, I'll try looking for that dividing line. Like maybe there's only a few options, two options or three options because I so desperately want to 
determine how many are people are in each group. And if I can do that by creating the three worlds or the two worlds of those options, I'll, I'll jump on it, even if I can't make any inferences per se after that. Like yeah. Maybe that doesn't necessarily tell me who goes in those worlds. Just knowing how many are, are in each world is, is very helpful. Yeah, there are times where I will make the templates and then not really maybe use them that much, but just to have the templates on the board can be helpful. So the grouping example, I think, is perfect. Like Let's imagine a game that says um, there's six people, we're putting them into two groups, but group B has to have more people than group A, and there has to be at least, let's say, there has to be at least two people in each group. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess in that case, it would immediately be 4-2. This is what happens when you make up examples on the fly. <laughs> um, Johnny, you should have learned from Christopher Darden back in the day. But... Um, yeah, uh, Christopher Darden. Oh well, the OJ trial. You know when he had oh, when he had OJ try to put on the glove during the during the courtroom, like it was going to be like a shocker sneak attack, like surprise thing, spur of the moment. Like, hey, I'll have OJ put on the glove, and then OJ couldn't get the glove onto his hand. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. So I, I totally know what you're saying with the with the numbers thing. If there were only two ways to distribute the spots in the grouping, then it might be really helpful to have those two templates up on the board. Mm-hmm. Um, another example of a place where I frequently will make a, well, where I will make two worlds, uh, if there is an if and only if rule. Okay. Because if and only if means that either two things are going to be certain one way, or those same two things are going to be certain in the opposite way. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the, that does set up two templates, right? I mean, so that is an, I guess you would call it an implicit uh, or, right? If and only yeah, if. Yes, exactly. Because they didn't say, or. they didn't give you an or statement, but you're kind of figuring out from this rule there there must be only two options. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. So do you do that too? Or have you have you noticed that? Uh, I hadn't thought about it for if and only if statements. Um, give it a shot because it, it like, it, it, a lot of times it'll, it'll kill a game. And the cool thing about it is that it eliminates that if and only if rule. When you make those yeah. two templates, then you don't have to consider that rule anymore. That's right. So the game I'm thinking of is the one where you have G and H moving furniture. Yep. You know what I'm talking exactly. about? That is exactly the one, yep. So one option would put would you put G in one column and H in the other, and then the other would be you just can't have G there and you can't have H there. Right. Um, and in so the world where DNH can't go anywhere, in the world yeah. where they can't, then maybe nothing happens in that world. But mm-hmm. in the world where G has to do the sofa or whatever it is, and H has to do the table or whatever it is, then yes. there you because you have such limited spots. Oh, also like G and J can't go together. So if you know where G is now, you know where J can't be, and so like things start happening in that scenario. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, cool. you were going to ask something. Oh no, that's actually what I was going to ask. I was going to say what what happens in that other scenario, but that you're saying maybe it doesn't a whole lot doesn't necessarily oh, happen. But. Yeah, I'm I'm frequently happy if I make one if I make two worlds and one of them is gets filled out, you know, decently, mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. halfway or maybe all the way, and the other world if nothing happens at all, that's fine for me. I don't care. That that's I'm perfectly satisfied with that outcome. Yeah. Um I started to say earlier it's a balancing test and what I mean by that is I guess you know once you go to law school you'll understand what a balancing test is but um, if there are times when I'll make three worlds there's times when I'll make four worlds or five worlds 
but I don't like that as much. So if I'm going to make three worlds or four worlds or five worlds, then I will insist on having more shit happening in each one of those worlds. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. So if I'm going to make two worlds, one of them can be completely blank and I really won't care. But if I'm going to make five worlds, like those five worlds better be pretty much completed or else it's going to be a waste of time. Yeah, they better be completed. And you might hope that you have like more like seven or eight questions because maybe if you only had five questions and only a couple of them required diagramming, you might not even need to create that many scenarios. Yeah, I mean, that wouldn't ever cross my mind. That I don't ever count the questions before I just dive into a game. But um, yeah, you, you can outsmart yourself. The one thing that I'll say for sure about this idea of making worlds, it is extremely powerful. I don't know anybody who's good at the games who doesn't do worlds. But for new students starting out, it can be really pretty frustrating at first while you get the hang of it right it can take it can take some time and it can take some trial and error it is really a kind of thing that you need to practice quite a lot because there's definitely an art to it when it works it really works but if you try to apply these worlds to a game that is not so susceptible to doing the worlds you can burn up a lot of time the other thing that i see really frequently is i see people misapplying this technique where they are, they made two scenarios, but they are leaving out a third and fourth scenario that would have also been possible. Yeah, no, and that, that's totally fatal because now, especially if you assume those are the only two options, right? You know, and you're missing out. Let me give you. I'll give you another example of that. Um, I frequently will make two worlds. Let's say there is just one conditional rule in the game. There's a rule that's like if J is fourth, then H is fifth. And if I don't like that rule, if it's one conditional rule and I would like to just dispense with that rule, I might make two worlds, a world where J is fifth and a world where J is not fifth. Yep, mm-hmm. that and makes sense. The point of that is that in the world where J is fifth, that's the sufficient condition for that rule. It triggers the rule, so now I know that H goes in whatever other spot I said or whatever it is. And then in the other world, nothing happens. But in the other world, that conditional rule is dead because the sufficient condition for the rule can't be met. Yep. But students will go one step too far frequently in that other world. They'll say, oh, J can't go fifth and H can't go sixth. Yep. And that obviously is confusing a sufficient and necessary condition. So you just have to be, you got to practice a lot and and you got to be really confident about what you're doing. Yeah. So that raises two points. One is when the sufficient condition is not met, the rule, like what you're saying, is it disappears. And I think that's hard for people to understand. Yeah. The rule just, it doesn't matter anymore if the if clause condition is not triggered. It, it doesn't affect the contrapositive either. The, the rule is just gone. And the corollary of that is if the necessary condition is satisfied, then the rule is also just gone. Right. And so you probably do this in class. I do it in class. I mean, I will... I will erase a rule off the board because I have a scenario where the rule has already been fully applied and I Mm, have a scenario mm -hmm. where either the sufficient condition is impossible or the necessary condition has already been met. And in that world, I don't have to think about the rule anymore. Yeah. Uh, So Uh, I've never erased, but that's a a good idea. Well, I get myself in trouble doing that because I erase it and then I realize that I want to do the... um, 
acceptability question, the list question. I want to do that by process of elimination and having erased the rule off the board, then I struggle to do the acceptability oh, yeah. question. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't, I don't think I would actually do it in real life if I was taking the test. I do it like sometimes for show in class yeah. and then I like, it's like, well, I was trying to show off and then I look stupid. My <laughs> class makes fun of me, but that's all right. That's funny. I can take it. The other thing uh, to point out here is, um, and this kind of touches on what you were saying, when you create two worlds where you really should have created three. So, for example, a really simple situation would be where you have T can go second, uh, fifth, or sixth, and you, you put it in second and fifth, but you don't create a scenario where T is sixth. That, that's a problem. But I would, I would add to that, even if you cover all the correct worlds, and I, I'm curious if you do this as well, but... When I'm creating my initial, let's say, three worlds, I will draw out those three worlds, those three diagrams, and I will, in each of them, I will put the distinguishing factor first. So I will, I will go ahead and put T in second, I will put T in fifth, and then I'll put T in sixth. And then once I've done that, then I'll go back maybe to the first world or the second world. Actually, I go to whatever world is easiest to fill up. But I'll go to that world and start working on it. And I've noticed that sometimes people will they'll create their, th their three worlds, but they'll draw the first world and they'll draw T into second. And then they'll start filling yeah, that out. Yeah. And then they'll go to the second world. And I, sometimes I feel like you forget yeah. what the, the dividing line, I guess that's what you were saying, the dividing line is. And then you can get kind of messed up. Yeah, absolutely. If you're going to make two worlds, go ahead and make the two blank templates. Or if, you know, the, let's say there's a rule that says S always goes fourth. Go ahead and put that into both of the templates. Yep. Then if it's like, oh, I'm making two worlds here because T goes either second or fifth, then on in the world on the left, put T into the second spot. And then before you do anything else, go into your other world and put T into the fifth spot. And now it's like, well, here are my two templates. Okay, now let me see what's going to happen into those two templates. Mm -hmm. I think that's, yes, I, I do think that's the correct way to do it. Great. So anything else on worlds? No, just practice it. I mean, you, you know, you got to do it. You don't have to do it for every single game, but I can't imagine making it through a section in 35 minutes without doing it at least on one of the games. I mean, it, it does destroy games. When it works, it really, really works. So I personally wouldn't be able to make it through a section if I wasn't doing it um, at least on one or two games. And there are certainly there are certainly sections out there where I would do it on all four games. Um, so it's it's really powerful once once you grasp it. So don't give up. You know, give it give it a shot. Um, now, a, kind of a side question here that I get a lot is people want to know, you know, how they want to fill up their initial diagram as much as they can. One way to do that is to try to create worlds. But in situations in which you can't create a world, or even when you create worlds but you can't fill them out as fully as you'd like to. A question I get very frequently, I'm sure you do as well, is how do I know when to stop and to jump into the questions? Uh, because you know you don't want to jump into the questions right away and not try to make any inferences or deductions. Uh, but at the same time, if you just hang out there all day, the, the time is going to run out and you're, you're not going to be able to answer any questions. So what do you say in that circumstance? Yeah, I mean, there's an art to it. I've, it's like you develop that intuition from practice. So there are games where I will be working on question number one after 60 seconds. And there are other games where I'll be working on question number one after five minutes. Um, 
So some games you can just make a lot of progress. Some games you can't make so much progress. The one thing that I would say is if you're looking at the clock, you're probably doing the wrong thing. Um, it's not, I'm never like, well, I've been thinking about this for a long time now. I'm still drawing diagrams. I better hurry up and get to the questions. I mean, that that would never be part of my analysis. My analysis would be, do I feel like I'm continuing to make productive progress solving the game? If I'm writing down things that I know for sure, then I am making, I feel like, productive progress toward a solution. And I'm perfectly happy to just be penciling out scenarios and working my way toward a completed solution. And then I'll go on to the questions. Um, other times, there are games that just don't have a lot of inferences. There are games where you can't really make multiple scenarios, or at least not very productively. So there's times where I'll say, well, I just don't see how I can invest time productively. I guess I better start answering the questions. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying about uh, keep penciling stuff in as long as you can you know, keep making those inferences. That, that is something similar. I, I kind of think of it as when you're going through and trying, so you, you write all the rules, you're done writing the rules, and you're, you're looking at the rules to see if any rules deal with the same variables or you know, if you can see any other relationships. Um, and you're trying to make inferences. If you can see inferences, then you should take the time to, to make them. Yeah. And I feel like, and I think this is a fair question. A lot of people say, well, sometimes there are more inferences to be made, but I don't know that they're there and I don't see them. And, and, I, and that happens to me as well. Sometimes I'm going through a game and I make maybe two or three inferences before I go into the questions. And it turns out there was another one. Yeah, of course. Um, but I guess what I'm always thinking is I'm going to try to make as many inferences as I can as quickly as I, as I can. And as soon as I, as soon as I hit a, a pretty, a pretty good wall, then I'm going to stop and then jump down into the questions. Now, if it's very possible that my wall was premature, that I hit that wall and I couldn't see anything else. And there were, there were more inferences, but as long as I was making inferences up to that point, that time was well spent. But as yeah. soon as I hit that wall and I'm having trouble, then I'm going to say, well, even if there are more, it's okay. I'm going to jump down into the questions and, and presumably find them, you know, as we go through them. I think it's a misconception that students think I'm going to find all the inferences before I go on. I don't think there is such a thing as all the inferences. It's, it's more just like how much can you learn about the game? At some point, you're going to feel like you're not like getting traction anymore. You're going to feel like you are not making progress. And then at that point, you have to go on to the questions. But of course, there's tons of times where I haven't predicted. I mean, there is going to be a question that says which one of the following must be true. And it's like, there's going to, it's going to be some convoluted thing. And it's like, well, that is an inference. I mean, it's a must be true, right? It's something that had to be true. And you didn't necessarily figure it out before you got to that question. But that's not to say that you should have necessarily figured it out before you got to that question. So yeah, I think it's just keep investing time as long as you feel like you're making progress. Generally, as long as you're writing down things that you know for sure, you're probably doing the right thing. When you get stuck and you can't write down anything else that you know for sure, then that's probably the time to start answering the questions. Excellent. All right, what's next?
So staying on course for the September LSAT, which is in two weeks from tomorrow, or going switching to December and not either, I guess, not taking it in September or maybe taking it and then trying to take it again in December. What would you, what would you advise someone who is maybe, I don't know, let's say five or six points away from where they want to be scoring at this point in the game? Yeah, if you're five or six points away, I would probably say if you know at this point you're already signed up for the test, you cannot get your money back. Though you know your only option at this point is to either withdraw on the night before, or you know withdraw any time before, or just go ahead and sit and take the test. If you're within five points or six points, I would probably say for most people you should go ahead and sit for the test. Five or six points is you know that's actually within like a standard deviation, and Presumably, you've been improving your score. You're kind of on the upswing a little bit. And who knows, like the day of the test, you could get a couple more questions right than you're used to. And you could also get a little bit lucky with a couple guesses here and there. And if you're within five or six points, I think it's worth taking a shot. Law schools, again, really only care about your highest LSAT score. You've already paid your admission fee. So I'd say stick with it. What do you think? So I guess I'd be really curious... um, and maybe my my question was a little flawed, but when someone is five or six points away, I guess I would wonder, is that because they're, that's kind of been where they're scoring, or is that the highest score they got, and that was one time a couple weeks ago, but they're typically scoring even lower than that? So if we assume that that's kind of their range, that they're pretty, they're pretty close to that range, and they haven't ever gotten, you know, even if you look at their highest score, it's still five points away. Um, I don't know. I guess I might be inclined to, I, my, my gut is to say I would want them to be more within two or three points of, of what they want. I guess it would also depend on how badly they want that score. A lot of times people, I think, have a score in their head that they want to get, but the reality is they don't necessarily need to get that high to get what they're, to get into the school that they want, but those yeah. are some things I'd be I find specific score goals to be pretty unproductive. I mean, you everybody's goal should be to get the best score they can get. And a lot of times I actually find people if if your goal is 175, a lot of times that's stopping you from getting a 165, you know, and, and people need to realize that they need to make the incremental progress first. And people also need to realize that 170 is a damn good score and that you know, you don't necessarily need to get that 175. So I just, I don't know. More often than not, I find people, I I find myself trying to talk people out of having specific score goals and into having more of like a, you know, activity goals, something that you can actually control. My goal is going to be study X hours or my goal is going to be do X number of practice tests rather than my goal is I need to get a 175. Um, But... I don't know. At, at, at this late date, I, 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 if someone was 10 points away from their goal, I would have an honest conversation with them and I would say, you know, it's really unlikely that you're going to magically score 10 points higher on the actual test. But for a lot of students who are within single digits, especially, you know, if it's five points, um, uh, I just don't really see the cost to taking it. I guess the cost, normally I would agree with you because they, they take the, the highest score, or at least the vast majority presumably do. But um, 
I was just thinking back to what Anne was saying about people who take a test and when it's lower and then you have to explain it. And if you're in a situation where you're sort of saying, well, I wasn't ready, but I took it anyways, she was saying that didn't look good. So I, I'm trying to avoid that. I love I Anne, but I don't know that I fully understand that bit of advice. I, I don't, I, I just don't, I don't see that as really making sense. I mean, anecdotally, I have plenty of students who took the LSAT before they ever met me and then ended up getting an LSAT score that was 10 points higher. And I don't know that the schools even asked them to explain it. And when a school does ask you to explain it, I don't see what's wrong with saying I was sick. I, you know, I, I don't think I buy Anne's advice that it shows a lack of judgment to not cancel your LSAT score or to not withdraw from the LSAT. That, that something about that just doesn't quite click with me. So she is definitely the expert of law school admissions, but, and, you know, I encourage my students to disagree with me. Um, if and that that's a that's an area where I don't think I agree with Anne. Okay. Yeah. Um. So last few weeks of prep. So you've just you've committed to September. What are some of the things you you tell people? Um. Well, certainly taper off your studying as the test uh, approaches. I think most students like they think that, oh no, I'm going to go into crunch time now and I'm going to like do 20 practice tests in the final week. I think that's bad advice uh, or a bad strategy. I think that you should instead, you should actually be doing almost the exact opposite of that, which is kind of winding down and getting yourself healthy and well rested um, for the day of the test. I would tell people to end on a good one if they can. So like uh, I'm having a practice test on the Saturday before the actual test date, uh, September 20th. I'll have a practice test. And if my students do well on that day, I will encourage them to have that be their last scored test before the actual day of the test. Okay. Just so that they can carry that good score into the test with them. I feel like um, almost the worst thing you could do is take a full practice test the day before the test. One, because you're going to tire yourself out. But two, if you have a bad score, then you're going to also freak yourself out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What What do you suggest during the week? So let's say they, they do well on, on Saturday the 20th. Would you suggest doing some time sections during the week or just, yeah. If, if you have like put a good score under your belt, you know, I have a tutoring student who just scored a 173. It was her, it was her first 173 and she has just started to score perfectly on the logic games and she's like really got getting it. You know, she's been working at it for a while and she's been really getting it, but she's going to come to my practice tests on the next couple of Saturdays. And if she gets another 170, anything, I will encourage her to say, you know, you don't need to score yourself anymore. Um, so then what do you do? I would say it's it's almost just like maintenance at that point. All you need to do is like s sort of do a couple questions here and there. I don't know that you even need to time yourself necessarily. Um, I could definitely, I have in the past encouraged people to redo some easy stuff, like redo some games that you know you've been successful at in the past, just to kind of stay in the rhythm of it. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, that's interesting. I guess um, I agree with the idea of 
trying to maintain a, you know, your confidence as you're going into the test. But I, I would be, it depends on the person's schedule, but if they have time, I would be inclined to encourage them to do individual timed sections, partly because I feel like individual sections are more likely to go well than full tests. But at the same time, um, they can maintain that speed that's required for the, the, the time section. And I, I guess I would be inclined to suggest that they grade it so that the questions that they get wrong, I feel like they're at a point in their test taking where they can quickly understand why they're getting questions wrong and maybe kind of recognize some elast some patterns in their test taking the, the week before the test and be aware of that and maybe even learn a couple things. My advice would be different for people who have reached a, a score that they're going to be very happy with and people who have not reached a score that they're going to be happy with. Okay. I, I think for the people who have reached a score that they're going to be happy with, I would be much more inclined to tell them you do not really need to do much studying at all. All you need to do is kind of you know, go outside and get yourself some fresh air or some exercise, make sure you get plenty of sleep send your mom flowers, like take care of all of your personal things, make sure that work is sorted out so that there's not going to be any last minute disasters, all that kind of stuff. Um, for, for somebody who is still striving to get those last few points, I would definitely have them doing 35 minute sections. And um, for most students, that's probably going to be in the logic games because I feel like the logic games is where people are most likely to get last minute big jumps in score. Do you agree with that? Oh, wait, did you say, sorry, I just, did you say logical reasoning or logic no, games? logic games. Logic games. Oh, well, actually, so the last couple of weeks, if someone's, let's say they're, I feel like games takes a lot of drilling to get faster at, so maybe I would encourage them to focus on easier games to make sure that they get those right. But um, I might encourage them to, focus on their strong section because that might be something that would be e like to, you know, improve your strength might be easier to do. It would depend on how many points they're, they, I guess they're leaving on the table in both those sections. If it's the same for all three sections, I would say maybe focus a little bit more on logical reasoning just because There's that can, yeah, that can affect more of your score. I, I guess my, I guess just the, the truth is that most students have a weakness in games. So maybe that's what I'm really talking about is that most people, no matter where you at are, are in your LSAT studying, most students start off with a weakness in games. Students can improve a lot in games, but even students who have been studying for a while, they could still gain points in the games. And I just feel like the gains that you make in the games tend to be like all at once. You, you get these big bursts of improvement like when it clicks, it really clicks. And when it clicks, you don't just get one more question right. You potentially get five or six more questions right because you have time to do an entire game. So it's also colored by my personal story of, of studying for the test. I mean, I had a weakness in logic games when I first started, and I didn't really figure it out until like the week before the test. So it was really last minute for me. And I knew that you know, I needed a score in the 99th percentile and I, um, games like in order to get 99th percentile, you basically have to be perfect on the games. 
and I was only getting like three games and I was running out of time. And um, all I did in the last week was just 35 minute timed sections of the games. And I think I had four or five days left when it like just clicked. And when it clicked, it like really clicked. And all of a sudden I went from, you know, 17 points on the games to 23 points on the games. And that's just such a big bonus. I don't really see anybody making, I don't see anybody getting plus six points on the logical reasoning in one week. But I do see people getting plus six points on the logic games in one week. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I, I guess my concern would, or my the reason I'm leaning towards logical reasoning is for kind of for the same reasons, I guess, in the sense that I'm thinking a lot of people struggle with the games. And so if they can make that breakthrough, that would be great. I'm just worried that they're going to put in a lot of time and effort and not necessarily see that break. Whereas if they focus on a particular logical reasoning type, such as flaw that they understand and they can just kind of tip the balance between getting those, a few of those wrong and now getting a few of them right. I, I guess I'm not expecting the same jump and maybe that's, I don't know, who knows, but um, something that they have, they may feel more confident about and more have more control over than the games, in which case I'm saying, well, get the easy ones down because you're going to have some easy ones almost certainly, and you want to do really well on those than necessarily breaking through and now doing well on three if they've only been doing two games, for example, or three games up to this point. It sounds like maybe the truth is we don't have... uh one-size-fits-all advice here. I mean, I think that it, it does it's going to depend on really what your strengths and weaknesses are. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, that's, that's going to be different for, for different people, I think, leading up to the exam, especially if you're losing points in the games and doing very well in those other sections. No matter how long you spend on them, the, 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 those last few points are going to be hard to pick up. Uh, last agenda item was just whether or not we should start our personal statement, letters of recommendation, all that kind of stuff. What do you, what do you advise on that? I would say the only thing I would remotely consider and would be letters of recommendation because they can take some time. But otherwise I would say, no, don't even worry about it um, until the test is over. And then the whole, the weight of the test is off of you and you can start focusing on other things. That said, um, you know, if, if you've reached your goal score and you're taking it easy that last week, maybe you have some time to sort of dabble with those things. Yeah. But I'm, I'm more inclined, I think, than, than you, Nathan, in terms of telling people to keep taking time sections, even if they've reached their goal score, partly because I'm worried about the volatility of scores. And so I'm, I'm hopeful, and I could be wrong here, but I'm hopeful that continuing to practice those time sections would help them maybe narrow that volatility in terms of their scores. Yeah, I, I, I definitely timed sections are good. I mean, I, I encourage, I, I, the bulk of my practice is based on doing 35 minute timed sections. So my students have done a ton of timed sections. Um, I guess I just am willing to let people kind of taper it off in that final week. I don't, I have not really seen people go backward on the test. 
I feel like once you've figured it out, you've figured it out. And I don't, I don't think that, at least in my experience, I have not seen people go backward. But absolutely, if you're still trying to improve your LSAT score, the way to improve your LSAT score is to do time to 35-minute sections and then review your mistakes. Since almost everybody would like to get at least one or two more points, uh, continuing to do 35-minute sections is absolutely great advice, but I would not burn yourself out. Um, the, the, as far as to do the application stuff, I frequently see people using the application stuff as a procrastination technique. I'm a procrastinator myself, so I can, you know, I can see it in other people. But um, when people are sending me drafts of their personal statement, but they're still working on a 145 LSAT score, you know, I definitely tell people put away the personal statement and start working on the LSAT because that, yeah, it's not going to matter. No, they're not. I mean, they'll tell you that they're going to read your personal statement, but they're not going to really read your personal statement unless you've got an LSAT score that puts you into the realm of possibility. It goes back to the like Alex Johnson thing that we talked about early, early episodes of the podcast, right? I mean, he was very clear about we are not admitting people with an LSAT score below a certain threshold. So you got to get yourself into the range with the LSAT score first. Yeah. Um, well, maybe we should address this in, in another episode, but I, I'm curious what you mean by you don't see people drop back after they get to kind of where they want to get. Because I do feel like I see a lot of people who maybe score a very high score and then you know, the next week it drops back a few points. I mean, overall, things are going up, but they're kind of jumping around and they occasionally hit what they want, but then drop back down. Maybe it's an issue for another day, but... I, don't, I just don't know that that can be controlled. I mean, everybody is going to have a plus or minus of at least a couple points on the day of the actual test. I, mm -hmm. I think that I'm just much more willing to tolerate that variability because I don't think there's anything that can be done about it. So if you have, you know, I, I like to tell people to look at the average of their last five practice test scores. If the average of your last five practice test scores are where you want to be, then I don't know that you need to really strive for more points. So maybe you can start tapering it off. If you're still below where you would like to be, and, you know, even people who are scoring 175 would probably like to get one or two more points, then the way to do it is to do 35-minute sections. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that that covers everything. Thanks um, for the chat. And um, if anybody wants to get to me, I'm Nathan at foxlsat.com. Ben is ben at strategyprep.com. Please subscribe on iTunes. Leave us a review. Leave us a comment on the blog. Anything else? No, that's it. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, thank you. See ya.